Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. And welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. Appreciate you joining us. As always, let's get the boring stuff out of the way first. Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast. But if you want to do something nice, you want to help us grow, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes, tell a friend, share on social media. Also, please don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History and on Twitter at Snapshots in. Well, we're getting to that time of year. It's the holiday season, so happy holidays to everybody. Probably have another show or two until Christmas. And like many of you, I look forward to seeing family over the holidays, having some good food, getting to relax a little bit, getting to take some time off work. But I also really get excited for the World Junior Tournament. Being in the States, I didn't really grow up getting to watch this tournament that much. It wasn't probably until five or six years ago that maybe a little bit longer that I got to actually watch the World Juniors. I remember in high school with dial-up internet before we had the really fast internet where your modem made that sound of to get online. Yeah. Back when dinosaurs roamed the earth. But I specifically remember trying to follow the different teams. I just remember reading about it and trying to learn as much as I could about it. I still remember the first time that I learned about the World Junior Tournaments was actually was with my dad, him reading out of the Washington Post. The Capitals had just drafted John Slaney the year before, and this was probably 1990, 1991-ish, and John had just scored this huge goal to help the Canadian junior team beat the Russians in Canada, I believe, and it was a massive goal. It was a monster goal. I'd actually love to talk to John about it, but that was the first time I heard about the World Juniors, and I was really fascinated by it, and when we finally did get the internet, as I talked about a few minutes ago, I remember going on and reading about it during the holidays and things like that. And I remember when we finally started airing on the NHL network, watching it with my dad. I remember seeing John Carlson's goal. I remember watching Philip Forsberg have that unbelievable year where I think he won MVP of the tournament. That was probably like 2013, 2014. So lots of good memories of watching the World Juniors. I plan on December 26th, plopping down on my couch, watching all the opening rounds. And as the week goes by, just, you know, popping in every now and then. It's, it's kind of funny. I am an American, as most of you know. But I actually root for Canada, believe it or not, in the World Juniors, because that was the team growing up that I could get the most information about in the hockey news and things like that. USA Hockey really didn't start putting that out until, you know, probably the last 10 years or so. So while I am an American and I do root for the Americans in the U.S. team, I I, I do pay a lot of special attention to the Canadian team. News alert, just got a tweet while I'm recording this. It looks like Hackstall is going to be out in Philadelphia and they're going to be bringing in Joel Quinville. Didn't take long for Joel to find a job. We all knew it would be pretty quick. I just can't believe that they kept Hackstall on after they fired the GM. But then again, I guess you have to have somebody there. You have to have somebody stable to coach during that process and during that turnover. And it, it's no surprise to me that they went with Joel Quinville. The guy's got tons of experience. So congratulations to him. Hopefully Hackstall will catch on somewhere else. I, I just never felt that he really caught on in the NHL. I think he was a great college coach, but it just doesn't seem like to me that he really, uh, really, I don't know if he didn't have the respect of his players or what, but he never was able to make his mark in the National Hockey League. This week's guest is Chris Contos, former LA King, Tampa Bay Lightning, New York Ranger, and Pittsburgh Penguin. 
Chris started playing in the early 80s in the National Hockey League, and I think his last games were with the Tampa Bay Lightning. It's funny, there are certain guys I always associate with certain teams, and I always will associate Chris Contos with the Lightning. He played for them that first year, and since we had already done an interview on the Lightning the first year, I didn't really want to do that. So instead, I looked at his career, and he had an unbelievable playoff run in 1989 with the LA Kings. They signed him as a free agent right towards the end of the season, and he blew up and went ballistic scoring goals in their first round series versus the Edmonton Oilers. So we talk about the first round series, playing for the LA Kings. He gives a really good perspective because he was actually there before Gretzky got there. We do talk a lot about Wayne Gretzky. We talk about Luke Robitaille, several of his uh, teammates in this interview. And we also talk about playing against the Edmonton Oilers. And of course, the following round that took place in that playoff. So let's go ahead and get to Chris Contos on his run in the 1989 playoffs with the LA Kings against the Edmonton Oilers. It's the 88-89 season. You were a first-round pick by Craig Patrick in the New York Rangers, and after stints in the Big Apple, Pittsburgh, and a very short stint in L.A., you end up in Switzerland. How did you wind up there? Well, that's a funny story. I had uh, I got called. I got traded from Pittsburgh to L.A. I finally got my uh, sniff. I got called up for, I think, six, six games. They weren't going to make the playoffs. I got to play. I played with Jimmy Carson, who was a rookie, and... Uh, Luke Robitaille, and mm-hmm. they had a cast. Steve Duchesne was there, a bunch of young guys that were coming up. And I think I played six games. I had 12 points. I had a six-point game, a goal, and five assists. Now, those aren't bad numbers, you'd think, right? A six-point game? I mean, four more, and I tie uh, Daryl Sittler if I, I was gonna you know, say, get I don't a little bit luckier. Yeah, I don't no, think that's I'm, bad at all. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a first rounder, you know, the, you know, the old saying about the well, first rounders have nine lives or whatever. They get more chances. And I'm doing anything I can to scratch and claw my way back to the show because that's where I want to play. I mean, I had a small contract problem with the Rangers when I was there. Just, you know, I got pulled out of junior. I think I had 22 goals in 25 games at Christmas, and I was lighting it up, and they pulled me up at Christmas, and I never went back. And the next year, didn't matter if I stood on my head, I was the one with minors. They had signed guys from Europe, and, you know, New York's a funny market. They want winners, and they – um they want the finished product and the development part of their uh, their organization at that time was a little iffy. They had some other first-rounders, Dave Gagne and Terry Karkner, all went through the same kind of thing where really hard to get up. But up and down like toilet seats, trying to scratch and claw our way up into the show. And, you know, I got traded to Pittsburgh. I was there with Mario, which was a fantastic uh, experience to play with him, You know, knowing that now that you know that I played with Gretzky as well in L.A., but... He was like a, a talent that I've never seen before, and I thought I was a talented guy, and then I saw his hands, his vision, his reach, and his everything, his poise and confidence, and I was like, oh, my God, this guy is – he's a phenom. He's on a different uh, – he's on a different level. Anyway, so I, I was I, I was taking face-offs from Mario and Dan Quinn as a defensive specialist. Uh, the coach at the time, Pierre Kramer, said, you know, I want you to be like Guy Carboneau, a shutdown guy. <laughs> okay, coach, I'll do whatever I can do to stay here. And Eddie Johnson calls me in around January or something and says, you're not scoring enough, so we're sending you to Muskegon. I'm like, come on. Like, really? Like, do you even communicate with the coach? I'm a, I'm a defensive guy, and I'm not scoring enough. So here we go, back to the minors again. And uh, I got traded to L.A. And uh, I got I played a little bit in Muskegon, got called up, went on a bit of a run, and I thought, okay, I've shown them. I can, I can produce in the NHL if they let me play. And at the end of the year, I think – 
the ice time that I got the last six games kind of rubbed guys the wrong way or what. I don't know. It was like a different time. This was back when they were wearing the purple and the gold uniforms. I was mm-hmm. number 33, and uh, I, I don't even think I have a photo in that uniform from the six games that I was there. I wish I did. If anybody has one, please send it to me, chrisapprovesmarketing.com. Anyway, um, so I didn't get a contract offer. I couldn't believe it. I was flabbergasted. So I could have maybe signed somewhere else, but I – I had already played in Finland uh, when I was younger, when I was having problems with uh, New York, and I said, okay, I'll go back to Europe. You know, nowadays lots of guys go play in Europe, and they have good careers, and, you know, they can make some good money and save some money, and, you know, the life's not so bad with the, uh, the amount of games that they play and the way they get taken care of. Anyway, did that. So, long story, I, I finished uh, my season in Switzerland, produced really well. The uh, Kings had found out, I think Robbie Fitorik was the coach there, and he'd... Uh, kind of being a mentor to me when I was, he was my first centerman when I got called up to the Rangers. I think he assisted my first NHL goal. He eventually retired. I think I took his job and they sent him to the minors. He retired, then he became a coach. And every time they send me down to New Haven, Connecticut, which was the farm team for both the Rangers and the Kings (laughs) while he was there, he would kind of help me get going again and, you know, get me on my way back up to the show. Like, it's almost, you know, they talk about mental awareness and stuff about uh, depression and stuff like that. And I can tell you as a high-strung first-rounder, every time you get sent to the minors, it's it's not a good feeling. It's just like it's it's one of the worst feelings in the world. And you can always tell, <laughs> you know, you might be on your way there by the way they don't look at you and nobody wants to talk to you and they all feel guilty and just like – one time I was being sent down, and the trainer, he took my, my per diem money out of the back of my pants because, oh. he, you know, it's just just stuff like that. And you go, oh, my God, it's all the stuff that gives you the drive to keep working hard to prove them wrong. Anyway, so I, I played in Switzerland. I got back. There was a rule that you had to sign by midnight of a certain night, and I had to send this fax in with my contract to Rogi Vashon, the guy that didn't want to sign me the year before. We got it in just before the deadline. I went back to the Kings, and I played the last few games, and I got some sniffs on the power play, and I started producing again. And then when we played Edmonton, the whole hockey world was watching because Gretzky had just been traded from the uh, Oilers to the Kings, and now hockey was a major fashion in the Los Angeles market where we got Stallone coming through the, the dressing room and Tom Hanks, and I could, I could tell you the name. The list goes on and on. It was the coolest thing. I've got to ask. And I read this, and I couldn't believe this when I read this. Did you even have a fax machine to fax the contract back? No, I, I was playing in Switzerland. I bought a house here where I'm sitting on my dock right now back in 1988 in Switzerland. A house came up in, near my parents' place on the water, and it was kind of like the area that I grew up. And, I mean, I didn't even know what the house looked like. We got faxes of what our house looked like. So you, to Switzerland, and it was just like a black outline of a, a roof, like a black blob that you couldn't even tell what it was. Like you know, but somebody, some a family member said, "Oh, you got to buy this house, nice house." So I'm I'm glad I did. Like we didn't even know what we were getting. So we just moved in the first night, and uh, my wife and I, we got married in Switzerland. We kind of eloped over there when they wanted to kick her out because she didn't have, she was my girlfriend at the time, and she didn't have a visa to be there. Another long story. <laughs> we we, uh, we did the hockey team wedding with, at the uh, Stat House, which is like their city hall and uh, translators and stuff. So we got married and we had a little party when we got home with all the family and everything, which worked out. But the first night we're living, like we get back, jet lag, we just moved into our house. I just fall asleep with my wife and all of a sudden, you know, it feels like 10 minutes later, it was probably a couple hours later, it was about 11 or 11.30. I'm hearing somebody knocking on 
my bedroom door of a house that I just bought. Oh my gosh. That, and that's what I'm going, Oh my God. I'm like, I'm looking for a base. I don't know what yeah. the heck is going on. I have no idea. <laughs> and it's my dad. He goes, he goes, Chris, they, uh, they called the house and they, they got a contract and you need to sign it. You got to fax it in before midnight. And so we phoned somebody that I, I had a friend that had, was the general manager of a, a lumber yard. And at the time it was called, uh, uh, Midland build all, or Timber Mart, or Midland, I think it was Midland Build All, and I think on I think Don Sherry would call it uh, Beaver Lumber or something. But <laughs> <laughs> okay, it was, and we signed the contract and we faxed it off, and the next day I fly out to LA, and that that's when I started to go on my little rundown there. You returned back to LA, and your first game was against Edmonton. You helped the Kings win six to three. I believe that you had a assist on Ken Baumgartner's opening goal. What do you remember about your first game back? And you had played for LA before. Things were a little different now. What what was the difference? The year before when we were the purple and yellow Kings, the stadium was three quarters or half full and it was, you know, we weren't making the playoffs. And you go back the next year in the same building and it, it was just like a, like what happened? It's just like crazy. It, it was, everybody was, was just so fanatical about hockey that quick, like, within 12 months. It was crazy. The Kings became one of the hottest teams in the NHL due to something that took place August 9th, 1988. And I'm referring to the Wayne Gretzky trade. And in the 80s, this probably had to be the the biggest trade, probably one of the biggest trades of all time. Do you remember initially hearing that trade? And what were your initial thoughts? Well, I was in Switzerland at the time and I was like, wow, I didn't think that would, I didn't see that coming. Really? Well, I mean, we all grew up watching, like I was a little bit younger watching him and the dynasty that had happened. And there's no way that guy's ever going anywhere. It's unbelievable. Now, a couple games through, you end up getting the flu towards the end of the regular season. You're there and, and you're still trying to make your mark. And as you alluded to earlier, you're doing whatever you can to claw your way back in the show. When you get the flu like that and you're sick, is there any pressure on yourself to get back there early and to just go? Or how does that work? Well, with their medical staff, I mean, when they know you've got the flu, you dehydrate, you get tired. So they, they'd they end up sending us over to the hospital and hooking an IV up to us and trying to hydrate us and, you know. So you wouldn't, some you weren't trying to get back early. Well, it's playoffs. And I mean, I mean, I wasn't Wayne Gretzky, but they, they sure wanted me to get back. I, I think I was starting to get on a bit of a roll and I think they wanted me to keep helping with the cause. And as a player, that's, that's all you want to do. You want to be a part of your team and, and help with success. You finally come back into the lineup on March 29th and the Kings pick up a win over the Winnipeg Jets. You're plus one in the game and you've had a few games under your belt. Now you're probably getting kind of comfortable. We talked about Wayne before and no interview about the Kings in the eighties would be complete without talking about Wayne Gretzky. What was your relationship like with Wayne? I didn't really know him because I came in late and he had a circle of guys that he would hang around with like Bernie Nichols and, you know, lucky and, and I was just kind of like the guy from Europe that kind of came in as the insurance policy. So, mm-hmm. I mean, and I mean, I looked up to him as a as a great player, having watched him all the year and seeing his vision and the numbers and the records and everything. And I was kind of in awe, just like everybody else that uh, would get to play with a player of that stature at that point. But uh, at the same time, I, I still wanted to prove that, hey, I wasn't a first rounder for nothing. There's a reason right. why I was a first rounder and I want to prove it. We talked about how things changed. What impact 
did he have on the community? I mean, you talked about the celebrities being there. I mean, if it was my wife that was in the dressing room, she could tell you any celebrity that walked but by. But it was, it was they, they were, were married to. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're everywhere. And she said, I saw this person, I saw that. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I don't watch soap operas. I don't watch the shows. I mean, I just, I'm just a hockey guy. I'm a meat and potatoes guy. And she was like, blah, 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 all this stuff, but all these. And I'm like, well, that was, that wasn't, you didn't talk like that the year before. It was like crazy how, how much it had changed. It was, you know, Stallone's in the first row, like on the glass, watching the games, almost like, you know, John McEnroe for, uh, for basketball and, and uh, Jack Nicholson, you know, the way those guys were like right. institutions. And, and it, it was, it, it had just changed like instantly with Gretzky coming on the scene. It just was like instant credibility. And it was the ticket that everybody wanted to have. Wayne coming to Los Angeles is the brainchild of a young NHL owner named Bruce McNall. And he's kind of a, one of the hockey's, I think all time best characters. What do you remember about Bruce? Just a fun loving guy. Always, I don't think he ever had a bad day when I was around. Like he was always smiling and happy, and he'd do anything for the guys to make them uh, feel that he cared. And you need anything, we got it. I mean, he, he was the first guy to get a jet, a jet for the, uh, the team. And I have a little doorstop. It's a little trophy with a with a jet taking off that oh, he uses wow. a doorstop. You know, it was a little memento that they gave us getting on the plane. But I mean, I think. Back in the day, I don't think guys like we. I'd always flown commercially. Sure, we always, you know, flew commercially back in those days, and then that started. And then, as you know nowadays, nobody flies commercially at that level. Is it true that he used to throw out hundreds in the locker room if somebody played well? And honestly, I wasn't there for the whole season. I only got there for the tail end of that season okay. and the playoffs. And even those are pretty important times. I don't recall that because okay. I had some pretty good games, and I would have thought. You know, I'd remember a guy throwing a hundred at me. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I wasn't, I wasn't like a multimillionaire. I was making a buck and a half and I was just, you know, grinding it out where other guys were making like two and three times that back then. After playing the Canucks twice, it's off to the playoffs where the Kings will face the Edmonton Oilers in the first round. As we touched on earlier, Wayne was traded to the Kings the prior season. Once he's gone around the league, what's the reputation of the Oilers? That's a good question. It just... I think that void was like, well, they, they could never win again without him. And we know that they did because they had, you know, still a good core group of guys and some new young guys that came up with great, good leadership qualities that ended up carrying the torch. But uh, the, the, the bar or, or everybody at that time wanted to know what happens, what happens now that Gretzky's on the Kings right. and he's playing against his old mates. Like what happens? That's why the whole hockey world, was just you know we're three hours behind, but everybody knew what happened every game. Like I don't, I don't for Canadians up here in the East, I, I don't get it. Like I can't stay up to watch an East game. I try. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm sleeping. I might fall. I might wake up. You know, when I hear the buzzer near the third period or something. But I, I don't know how people did it. At the time, the Kings were coached by Robbie Fatorik, and and you mentioned that you and Robbie were close. What kind of coach was he? He was he was just a he was a different guy. Just a he was a good coach. I knew him from the time that I turned pro, and like I said, he helped pick me up and get me going. You know, trusting on my abilities and pushing me to get you know back to the show again. And as a coach, I think that's what your job is when you're in the minors. He had got the coaching job, I think, the year before when I got traded there, which was probably a factor of why they decided to move somebody for me to bring me in to give me a shot because he probably thought I know what this kid can do and it was something that opened my door to get there. So that's all you can do is ask for a door to open. Every time a door shuts, you know, hopefully another one opens. So 
Game one is record-breaking weather. It's 100 degrees in Los Angeles. And the playoffs are getting started. Kelly Schrute was the last-minute scratch due to the flu, and Glenn Healy stepped in. You guys ended up losing this game 4-3. to three. Do you remember this game at all? I just remember the electricity in the building. Everybody was going crazy, but the Oilers, uh, you know, back in the day, they could just uh, – actually, when we talk about the West Coast teams, it was run and gun and pretty fast and similar to the way it is today with the uh, speed and transition and you make a mistake, there's like four guys coming the other way and, you know, if they're good, they can uh, make, you know, put together some nice passes and make good scoring plays and uh, – they they handed it to us that night, and you know, uh, the hockey world would have thought, oh, there's no way, like, there's no way this is going to happen. Like, the Kings can't beat the Oilers. There's no way. Game two is just one night later. Kelly Fruity's back. Gretzky has a goal, but the story is all about this young 25 year old center from Toronto named Chris Contos. You lead the team five to two win over the Oilers with a hat trick. But of course, there has to be some controversy. What happened with that first goal in Essatikanen? possibly a high stick that right at the shoulder length, but I think it went in and it was a rebound. And then I, I think I shelved the rebound and I think Edmonton wanted a high stick and even thinking about, I don't know what happens when you hit a high stick into the goalie and it comes back. Cause rebound. I don't know if it should be blown down even today. I, I probably should know that, but nevertheless, there was no video replay. <laughs> Thank God. And, and it stands uh, in the record books. It stands. Yeah, yeah. It so- stands. Yeah. There we go. But Esatikinen, it was the two of you next to each other in that goal crease. He's known for being one of the more colorful characters in the National Hockey League, and he speaks Tikanese. How was playing against Esatikinen? Well, he's a competitor. I mean, for a Finn, and I played in Finland, he's not like your typical Finn that you play against over in Finland. Lots of energy. You know, he, he was kind of a pioneer of that style. Other ones have gone on to do similar things and make marks for themselves, but he was a big part of that team, and for so many years and he had a great career game three heads north to Edmonton what's playing hockey like in the 80s in Edmonton the hockey capital of the 80s well I would have thought Toronto was the hockey capital but with the Oilers but I'm I'm gonna agree with you in a sense that with the Oilers winning four cups and Gretzky being you know there it was just like that was the ultimate team of all time for Canadians to think about, and uh, no disrespect to all the Montreal teams, but to put them together the way they did and dominate the way they did, and then you just go in there and guys are just like, you know, the ice here is just like 20% faster than anywhere else in the league. It's just like perfect ice. like, And just you get there and you go, this is where Gretzky put on the show you know, for all these years, and now we've got a chance to go in there and maybe, maybe... Uh, you know, equal them or make it interesting. Unfortunately, it's a little bit of a tough game. Uh, you guys get rocked. And Marty McSorley, who's a defenseman for the LA Kings, picks up five minor penalties during this game. I know his role is to create chaos. He's an enforcer. It's there to protect Gretzky. But when you have a guy take five minor penalties, what is? how does the team react to that? You know, you're in playoffs. You got to kill them. Like, you got to beat you got to beat the other team, and you got to beat the Zebras, too, when you're on the road. That's uh, like a little cliche that we always talk about. So, you know, whether the penalties were justified or unjustified, if those are the cards you're dealt, you try to keep it close on the road so you can at least you know, tie it maybe win it in overtime. You're going to tell me what the score was. I can't remember what the score was. But 
It was, I actually don't have it written down, but it was, uh, all I have was that it was a game that you guys got rocked. So I think it was pretty bad. 4-1 or something like that. Yeah, 4-2, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Maybe even more. I think it's only fitting that the beginning of this, I talked about the internet and how I used to follow the world juniors via the internet and how technology has really made it possible to watch the game and follow the game more closely, no matter where you are in the world. How about this one though? We forget, at least I forgot. There was a time where you had to fax everything and not everybody had a fax machine. I'd loved hearing that story about how he had to go to the lumber yard to get his contracts faxed over. I just thought that was great. Chris is a great guy. We go ahead and we pick up the interview. We talk a little bit more in part two about the Oilers series. Of course, we talk about the following series that they played in against the Flames. And he tells a couple of funny stories. We actually talk a little bit more about the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, Chris spent some time there. So a good conversation. So I'll talk to everyone on Thursday when we air part two of our interview with Chris Contos. Talk to you then.